but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. That that intro like uh woke me right up. It's normal. Uh, what was different? It was just like extra vigorous, I feel. Oh. Uh <laughs> Well, I mean it I feel like it fits what happened in tennis today. It was quite spicy. Is spicy? No. <laughs> Not as spicy. I'm, I missed all that because I was at work, but so you can fill us in on that later. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like a, a, a spark was lit today at Wimbledon. I was, you know, throughout the whole week, I was feeling like this tournament is such a flop. I just was having so much trouble getting into it. And I felt like there wasn't a whole lot of energy around it. And for me, just this is just me. It felt like, you know, the day one, three, five schedules were just so boring. Aside from, you know, a few here or there, I want to watch Jabour, but the center court schedules, ugh, just, it's, it's been a hard tournament to get into. I'm sitting here knowing that this is a common refrain from you every Grand Slam. No, I, I don't actually think that's true. And I'm not the only one who has noticed it, right? Mm -hmm. The Wimbledon officials are a bit upset because ticket sales are down. There is a, a rail strike in England. You know, COVID is still a thing that exists. I can't explain why attendance is down, but that coupled with the ban of the Russian and Belarusian players is just a weird Wimbledon. And it started with a lot of electricity being pumped into the tournament with Serena Williams playing singles. So we will start the episode with both Williamses because... Since our last recording, not only did Serena play Wimbledon, but Venus has played a match at Wimbledon already. And, like, And there's more to come. Venus was sighted in London and everybody's like, okay, okay. And then we get word that she's teaming up with Jamie Murray to play mixed doubles. Right. And she was in Paris as well, but it was she made it quite clear that she wasn't going to play in Paris. She just happened to be there. But we'll, you'll talk about this a bit later, but something about seeing the, the magnificent lawns of Wimbledon just inspired her to say, you know what, I want to play mixed doubles. Mm -hmm. Now, Miss Serena, the GOAT. Yes, Serena drew uh, an unseated player in Harmony Tan, and none of us really knew what to expect with Serena's form going into this. Her doubles play was exciting. And the ground strokes seem to be in pretty good shape, but there's really no telling what happens when the court is all yours. You know, mm -hmm. how is she moving? Can she defend a singles court? It has been a year, and she's struggled with a ton of injuries over the past few years. All things considered, I thought she looked pretty good for her first match in a year. Shame on us, we should have seen that a player like Harmony Tan would be the type of player to give Serena problems. If she had somebody who was generating more pace with less craft on the opposite side of the court, that may have suited her better in a first-round match. 
Yes, I came away from that match thinking if Serena had played a big hitter, she would have won. She likes pace. She may have struggled with the speed of the ball a little bit, getting used to it and defending, but Harmony had her running all over the court. And I thought her movement was surprisingly good for the long layoff. And, you know, she has lost a step since coming back from maternity leave. I think everybody knows that. But it was unclear, you know, before she played in Eastbourne, was she even in shape to play? She looked better movement-wise moving forward to the net than she did laterally. Definitely. That showed in the way that she decided to organize her game, right? She approached the net 64 times and won something like 63% of those points. Not a great percentage. But, but I like the tactic and she was hitting a lot of traditional volleys, which has not been her forte over the past few years. She hasn't been a regular doubles player for a long time. If she's hitting volleys, typically they're swinging volleys. They were, these were like really old school and hit, I mean, some just absolutely gorgeous drop volleys. Also, that backhand was doing work. A lot yes. of classic Serena Williams short angled backhand winners or unreturnables. I think it was clear that the forehand was her weakest shot on that court that day. Mm-hmm. Now, Miss Harmony, she she hustled and she threw everything at Serena and gave Serena every opportunity to falter, right? After the second set, Serena wins 6-1. It feels the momentum is firmly on her side. And then the third set gets complicated. Well, this match is a story of Serena not being able to close leads the entire match. Every set, mm-hmm. every step of the way. Went down 0-2 to start the match, was up 4-2. Serving, I believe, 40-15 for a 5-2 lead. Ends up losing that set 7-5. Comes back in the second set. Wins a 30-point second game (laughs) to break and go up 2-love. Runs away with that second set. Okay, 6-1. Get to the third set. She's up again. Up a break again in the third set. Can't close. Serves for the match. Can't close. Up, I think, 4-love in the deciding set tiebreak. Can't close that either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was, if you want to look at it as a frustrating, I'm sure Serena found it frustrating, she seemed unable to hit through the court, to hit through her opponent. There's this misnomer that Serena historically is the most powerful women's tennis player that's ever lived, that she right, just blasts. This is pe- how she won her majors, right? She just blasts people off the court when in fact she hits with a lot of spin. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that a lot of her ground strokes were fairly conservative in this match. Yes, and that I think that was a big, big issue in this tiebreak, was that she played too conservatively, but she also made mistakes. Yeah, the rust was there. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Serena Williams can still play tennis at 41 years old. How old is she? 41? Uh, 40. She's 40. She'll about be, to be 41. Yeah, in September. Yes. She can still play tennis. It's kind of crazy that after a year out, I mean, she's the GOAT, but uh, to show up and do this, it's pretty remarkable. Three hours and 11 minutes, and she clearly left everything on the court. And one of the things I took away from this match and Serena talking about it afterward was that it seemed to me that Serena was coming to terms with her tennis mortality. 
and understanding that the only thing she can control is the effort that she gives in a match. And she knew that she gave everything she had in this match. Whereas that wouldn't have been something that would give her any solace whatsoever in the past. <laughs> right, right. And so it feels like a very different attitude for Serena, but I don't know if it's a like a good or a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, she's older, she's experienced, she doesn't seem to have that overwhelming weight on her of 24 and you know there were some years there where her tennis felt uh like distinctly unjoyful mm -hmm. right that she was doing this because she had something to accomplish and then she was gonna dip here she it like she fought she tried her best and seemed kind of satisfied with that she enjoyed the process of fighting through this match she was asked in press if this would have been a satisfying last Wimbledon memory if it is in fact her last match at Wimbledon. And she said, definitely not. But today I gave all I could do today. Maybe tomorrow I could have gave more. Maybe a week ago I could have gave more. But today was what I could do. At some point, you have to be able to be okay with that. At some point. This is, the, this is where I'm saying that I feel... Like Serena is coming to terms with her own tennis mortality. Mm -hmm. That she can no longer expect Serena to just show up. If things aren't going well, just put the business bun up and get to work. You know, like... Right. It is what it is with her game right now. Well, yeah. And any champion of her age, if you're lucky, you get flashes of brilliance. Right? If you're really lucky, you're not going to get it through an entire match. For the most part. So if she can put together those bits where she's peerless, then I <laughs> I mean, if I were her, I'd be like, well, I can still play this game. If she had won the first round match, I think she could have won several more rounds, mm -hmm. like just build up that momentum. She was very close to having a straight sets win. Mm -hmm. That could have easily been like a 6-2-6-1, six, six, I'm back. <laughs> and we'd <laughs> right. be having a completely different discussion game points to go up 5-2 in the first set and she ended up winning the second set 6-1. You are right. I think that it's possible that she could have played herself into this tournament more as she mm -hmm. played a few rounds. For me, I don't know that she could have won this tournament. I think it's well right. highly unlikely. But the idea that somehow this is a massive failure for Serena is just mindless gibberish yeah and as a fan i'm happy to be here right i'm i'm genuinely happy with whatever we get from serena now i'm good if she never plays another match yeah it'll suck but i'm honestly good how can you possibly ask for more a few weeks ago we didn't know if we'd ever get to see serena play again we got to see a few cute Doubles matches in Eastbourne with Jabir. She comes here to Wimbledon, gives us three, and, oh, three hours and 11 minutes of sometimes high-quality tennis. A lot of rust, but... As, Six, 61 winners? As a fan, there was a lot for me to enjoy. I mean, if you're out here taking the stance that it's either title or nothing, which is what... Serena has directed and commanded and demanded of herself throughout her career. Mm -hmm. Fine. And so I feel like a lot of her fans have taken that directive as well. 
that if it's not a title, I don't want it. <laughs> right. Or you're somehow tarnishing your legacy by continuing to play. This Now, this is wild to me. You, like, you know how I feel oh, about this. Ooh, it, it made me really hot to see that. Like, she has 23 singles Grand Slam titles. Do you think that if she loses in the first round, like, one gets subtracted? It's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Like, you tweeting that? I understand you don't get it why it's dumb. Because you're not tarnishing your own legacy. Because if you go through your own timeline, there is a litany of stupidity. You are know, you, like are it's you talking about me? Course. I mean, probably true, but <laughs> no. But you know how I feel about this, mm-hmm. folks who want to retire athletes before they're good and bleep bleep ready. Yeah. Oh my God! In golf, you got these guys playing until their seventies. Do you think they believe they're going to win the British Open? Probably not. <sighs> Mind your own business. <laughs> right. Let these people live their <laughs> lives. Again. It's this business of, for me, denying these athletes humanity. You know, they're only Mm. good as far as their wins and what they can do for you in their performances. If, as Serena indicated, this wasn't the end of the world, she was still able to get some enjoyment or get something out of it, then that's great. Right. And... Athletes don't need to, like, preserve their careers as this museum piece for you to look upon, right? This is actually their real lives. So that it becomes easier for you to go in these Twitter streets and make these go arguments with other people. Right, right. It's not about you, boo. (laughs) Serena still has 23 slam titles. The fact that she lost all these slam finals coming back from maternity, that too will not diminish her legacy. Because when we look back in 10 years and you're going through, oh, let me look at Wikipedia and Serena Williams career statistics. And you look and you see all those colorful slots, Mm -hmm. even though they're not trophies, you're going to look back and say, well, damn, this woman did this at how old? 37, 38, 39. And all these other women are struggling to get to five third rounds in a row. Get out of here with that. She is enhancing her legacy with everything that she does. Speaking of getting out of here, Harmony Tan got out of her women's doubles pairing post-haste. And Tammy Korpach announced herself as a truly a star troll. I I feel for this young woman, really. She has had a wild ride (laughs) the last few days. She sure has. Right after Harmony Tan pulled out, she took to social media to let her have it. She posted a photo of herself on a grass court looking dejected. It's very Charlie Brown. You see it? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> said that my doubles partner H. Tan retired from our doubles today. She texted me this morning, let me wait here one hour before the match started, and then goes on. But really... The the kicker is, if you're broken after a three-hour match the day before, you can't play professional. That's my opinion. Mm. Damn. <laughs> now, Ms. Tan said that she consulted with a WTA physio at, who advised that she probably should rest, meaning that she pulled out of the doubles because she, hey, she just beat the GOAT. And look at her now. I mean, we didn't know this at the time, but she's in the fourth round. 
from a very difficult section. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harmony also said <laughs> that, you know, I did not respond to that because I'm not about that life. Like, I'm over, I'm over here doing me, <laughs> and I'm not going to respond to that mess. And then, allegedly, Tammy reached out to her and apologized, and then let us know on social media. It became a thread. She says, hey, everyone, me and Harmony have talked and figured out all misunderstandings. She made me clear about her injury now, and we already apologized to each other. As a fact... I will delete my previous post regarding this situation, and I will ask not to write bad comments to her. Don't want that she gets insults. Hope for your understanding. And then, once Harmony beat Soribe's Torbo, Tammy posts again. Mm-hmm. Congrats for a win against another great player. Amazing week for you. I'm glad your leg injury got better so quickly. What? Girl. And so apparently... She was in DMs with tennis Twitter people saying, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not trolling. I'm being genuine. No. Mm -mm. This could be an ESL thing. It could be. (laughs) I'm glad your leg injury got better so quickly. If you read it Mm -hmm. word for word without putting anything between the lines. Yes. The denotation is uh, the word for word. Straightforward. It means what it means. We are just naturally inclined to be messy, shady bitches. Um, okay, yes, but we're reading the connotation. Listen, she said it was no sarcasm. I'm gonna give her that. It was hilarious, though. It truly was. And there is not a dull moment for Miss Tammy during this Wimbledon, because now she's on a ferry posting about how she tested positive for COVID. So she got to come to Wimbledon, lose to Heather Watson in the first round, pull out a doubles, and get COVID. And and become famous. But listen, if Harmony had played that doubles match, maybe she would have gotten COVID too. And her oh. storybook fairy tale run to the fourth round may not have happened. Now we'll get into COVID a little bit later, but Ms. Corpatch actually did post a selfie with Rafa Nadal without a mask. Shortly before she tested positive for COVID, so thanks for that. I didn't see. You didn't see that. That's still on her. It's still on her Instagram. Venus Williams. This was such a treat, and it was very important for me to have at least one Williams sister win a match at this Wimbledon. (laughs) I have to say, for having not played in almost a year as well, even though this is doubles. Venus Williams looked great in this match. She really did. Her serve was, I mean, better in doubles than we've seen it recently in singles. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Clocking like 116 mile an hour first serves. She was only broken once, I believe, in the entire match. Mm -hmm. She is an extremely serious competitor. Mm -hmm. She was not playing this mixed doubles just to... To dick around. Pardon my French. She mean mugged uh, after. <laughs> this is one all in, in the, the first, first set. In the first set, right? Mean mugged her opposing team, Michael Venus and Alicia Rizalska. And I think she forgot for a moment that, okay, like the other team is like laughing and having fun, but I'm the Venus Williams. 
I am here to win. Now, she didn't mean mug the entire match. No. But that particular moment signaled that, okay, Venus is not here to play around. But there were also moments where maybe Venus was made to look wanting at net. And you knew what was coming next. Mm. You knew that somebody's head was being targeted. (laughs) That there was a return that's about to be rifled. That she's not suffering any fools on this court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her movement was not great. She's 42 years old. Right. And she said she was simply not fit to play singles. Correct. And when I say movement... That's tethered to reaction time. I think that's more what her problem was in this match. Her reaction times, especially at the start of the match, were very slow. Alarming in parts. (laughs) (laughs) But this is mixed doubles, right? Like, you're playing against Michael Venus and Rizalska, who are both very experienced. They're both talented players who understand tactics, these little mind games that doubles players play. Your reaction time, I I think you just need... Like, the repetitions. Mm -hmm. What was clear, too, in this match is that Jamie Murray is a wizard at net. Truly. Just hit some some volleys that dropped dead in the grass. Like, I don't even... I don't even know how it happened. Like, I had to replay a few things. They look good together. So, uh, four more more matches before we have (laughs) another Williams Slam title. (laughs) Which to me would be one of the craziest things, right? Venus just showing mm. up and winning a mixed doubles type just because. Right. And I say just because, because she had no plans to even play Wimbledon, even though she was already in London. She was asked about it in press. And the question, Venus, I saw you taking it all in at the end there. What was it like to be back on a big court? Also, you mentioned it was last minute. Did you kind of come here planning to play? We saw you on the practice court initially. And she says, I had no plan to play. I saw the grass and I got excited. I was even at the French. I had to work, but I wasn't there. I was at the French Open. It's a beautiful event, but my heart didn't beat the same way. Not that I could play, but I had no plans. That's why I was asking him last minute, him being Jamie Murray. He just had a baby too, so I know there was a lot going on. Definitely, I couldn't have guessed that I would be here right now, taking it at the last minute. I haven't played in a year, so you don't know what you're going to get. Practice is so much different from a match. It's not easy physically or mentally or anything. Just at the last, it was like, oh my god, wow. I just not only played a match, but won a match. I'm never like that kind of a player. I always expect to win. But when I sat there, we wanted to win. But when I sat there at the end... It was like real. Yeah. I felt something in my heart. (laughs) So did I. Right? After hearing that. (laughs) I mean, and for me, as a fan of a player, their joy is what gives me joy most. Like, maybe this has something to do with being a long-suffering Venus fan. Even when she was resurgent in 2017, there was still a lot of suffering in that year amidst the joy right like a lot of near misses yeah so given that history i've had a long time to make my peace with my faves tennis mortality and so now being able to see them go through it themselves and maybe smell a few of the roses 
that is something that it uplifts me as a fan. You've probably seen this clip floating around of Venus and Jamie and press and Venus kind of clapping back at a reporter. <laughs> Make sure you've seen the entire clip. It's like 30 seconds long because she has actually asked the same question three times. And the question is, are you guys in it to win it? Or just to get past the third round where Serena and Andy came across? And she responds, what kind of question is that? Ha ha ha. We're in it for a stroll. Come on. And so the question is posed two more times. This reporter had ample opportunity to desist. Because you knew, I mean, you knew a Venus clap was coming. She has already answered the question. You've already got your quote, right? She, she even laughed. It's difficult to make Venus laugh in press. We know this. I did it once. Right. <laughs> but take your win. Why, why are you pushing on this inane question? Are you here to win? Or do you want to win? Or is this just a, a hit and giggle? I mean, if you've covered the sport any at all over the last 10 years, especially, where William's retirement watch has been front and center, we've seen this go down so many times before. We know what the answer is. And even if the answer is not that, do you think they're going to say that? No, I'm, act- I'm actually just here to lose in the first round. Let's get into a few of the upsets that happened in week one to date. Because as of this recording, all of the men's and all of the women's round of 16 matchups are locked in. I love when that happens, when we have time to record. In the first week on the men's side, Felix drew one of the most difficult floaters there is in Maxime Cressy, an American servant volleyer, a very high quality match, tons of winners on both sides, but unfortunately, Felix was upset by Maxime. And even more unfortunately, Cressy went on to lose to Jack Sock. You resisted the urge? I did, you know, not, not every time. You didn't want to overdo it? Jack Stocking. <laughs> uh, Jack Zapatos. Jack Pantalones. <laughs> Jack is not in the fourth round, but he got a few cute wins here. Orkach. Last year, bageled Roger Federer, great player on grass courts, lost to another very dangerous unseeded player in Davidovich Fokina. Right, but this was also a complete mess. R- correct. A complete mess of I a I mean, result. should have won. He announced right before the tournament, Hey guys, at this tournament, the one that I made the semifinals last year, he didn't say that, I'm saying that, for every ace I hit, I'm going to donate X amount of dollars. And then you go out like that in the first round. That's, you know, you're really sick. (laughs) He was doing that for a good cause. Yes. Maybe he'll be inspired to just donate whatever, not based on the aces. (laughs) But yes, he should have won. PCB, uh, despite being a top player, a top 20 player for many years at this point, has still never won a match at Wimbledon. Had to retire... In this first round match, even though he won the first set. On the women's side, we talked about Bia Haddad Maya, who just absolutely dominated the lead-up tournaments, winning two of them, had a, what, a 13-match win streak, loses. I feel like this always happens. Yes, always. <laughs> always. It's just that this player had an extraordinary run of form. It wasn't mm-hmm. just like a good lead-up season, right? It was really impressive. Tragically, Belinda Bencic 
also went out in the first round, losing to Wang Chung in three sets. This match was crazy because Belinda was down a set, and I believe 5-1, before coming back to win that second set. And then the match was suspended overnight, and Wang Chung comes back the next day to close it out. You you remember a lot. When something is of interest <laughs> to me, and listeners out there can figure out why this match would have been of interest to me. Right, right. Then it sticks because Belinda was so close to remaining in the conversation. Yeah. Daniel Collins was the number seven seed, lost to Marie Boskova, who we know has the potential to beat top players. And look at Miss Boskova knocks out Babs Krejcikova to reach the fourth round. Emma Raducanu won uh, a round, and then she lost the next round. She, I mean, she drew two players who were kind of on fire on grass. Alison Van Oetvank, who had won, uh, I think, two ITFs on grass leading up to this, including Serbiton, and then faces Carolyn Garcia in the second. Who just won a tournament. So she loses to Garcia, and then she goes into press and she says, quote, I'm a slam champion and no one's going to take that away from me. True statement. Goes on to say, if anything, the pressure is on those who haven't done that. False statement. Well, I would say that's a mix. Because there is immense pressure on Emma, especially at Wimbledon. There's a, a bit of facade with that statement. Mm-hmm. Like trying to hide behind... Something. Protection. Self-protecting. Yes, which I actually think is important for an athlete, especially a young athlete. Like, you need a level of delusion, right, that's, to, that's to be the a word. champion. That's the word, delusion. Right, you have to believe that you are the best and that, well, I have something they don't have. Like, the, there's no pressure on me, right? That was always Serena's refrain. I have nothing to lose. Okay, and we knew that there was delusion with that, too. Of course. On a much grander scale (laughs) now what remains to be seen is if this attitude helps emma and if it does then it's great because the current landscape of women's tennis is everybody's winning one week and losing the next 16 like right this uh, this whole pressure cooker of a week-to-week grind it's non-existent for most players. Right. It's like everybody can have the week of their life from any week to the next. You collect your paycheck, collect your points, and you keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Nobody's out here outside of Iga Shriantek winning from week to week to week to week. Right. But Emma's situation is unique compared to the other woman. Because in this instance, she's returning to her home slam where she had her first breakout last year and then subsequently went on to do something nobody had ever done in the history of tennis mm-hmm. and collected millions upon millions of dollars, had become this breakout star, someone who a lot of companies wanted to be the face of their products. And the outsized nature of her expansion outside of tennis relative to her results on the court subsequent to that has contributed to this as well. Yeah. And it's just, it's not the natural journey of a young tennis player to reach, what what was she, the round of 16 in yeah. her very first Grand Slam in Wimbledon and then win her second 
the second that she ever played. Like, you're young, you don't have a coach at the moment, which is a, a big thing, right? She has a team, but she's had a few coaches over this past, what, 10 months. And this is like her first normal year on tour, but she's going through it as a major champion. It's just weird. And there are expectations from sponsors. Yes. Period. Point blank. This just made me roll my eyes a little bit. Fair enough. Because I think, to be honest, I didn't really believe it. No. Like, the, I didn't. the delivery, I just, I didn't really buy it. Which is fine. Like, you're allowed to be sad about a loss. And then two players who, their losses did not come as a surprise. Yeah, for different reasons. Muguruza lost to Greet Menon in the first round. And she, you know, she posted something afterwards saying, I'm practicing, like, I don't... Basically, she doesn't know why her hard work isn't translating to tournaments, and it's really frustrating, and it's hard to get the joy back if you keep losing and you don't get why. And apologize to her fans. Oh my god. And Sloane Stevens, I love this. Sloane responded to her with a message of support, which I feel like, especially with Garbinia, I... <laughs> I don't think she cultivated a ton of friendships on the tour when she first started. So it's really, really nice to see that support between them. Sloane has kind of assumed this position of auntie to everybody on tour. Yeah. Like yeah. She is definitely slid into the role of elder stateswoman, of protector of the tour, mm -hmm. kind of under the radar and seamlessly. Yes. And Annette Contivate won her first match against Para, lost in the second round to Niemeyer, who's now in the fourth round. Contivate, you know, she's still dealing with uh, after effects from COVID, apparently. And it's kind of interfering with the training. So this wasn't a huge surprise, but she was the number two seed. So where does that leave us in terms of the matchups? We'll start with the woman on the top half, Alizé Cornet against Isla Tomlanovic. To play the winner of Elena Rybakina and Petra Martic. There's going to be a semi-finalist from those four. <laughs> and then, to close out the top half, Paula Badosa against Simona Halep to play the winner of Amanda Anisimova and Harmony Tan. In the bottom half, we've got Boskova versus Garcia, Martins versus Jabour, Tatiana Maria versus Ostapenko, and Watson Niemeyer. So we have a lot of surprising names here. Yes. <laughs> right? I did some counting, and of the 16 remaining women, seven are gunning for their second ever career slam quarterfinal. Seven of the 16 mm -hmm. have only made the quarterfinals one time and are a match away from doing it a second time ever. One of those is Alizé Cornet, who well. only this past January at the Australian Open, reached her first ever slam quarterfinal. Buried the lead a bit here. Alizé Cornet beat the dominant world number one, Iga Sviantek, today, breaking her win streak, stopping it at 37. And I said before the tournament that I expected the streak to end here. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's entirely surprising that it happened to someone like Cornet, who can beat top players she beat serena three times 
she has an unconventional game and Iga is still not extremely comfortable on grass, right? I think watching this match, and she talked about it afterward, that she wasn't really able to execute a game plan. She was hitting a lot of errors, and it didn't seem like she really knew what to do against Cornet. The error tally was something like 33 for Schwantek to 7 for Cornet. <laughs> right. And it's not surprising to see a low error mark for Cornet. But Ego was just, you know, the rhythm was just off. Cornet is now tied with Aisugiyama for the most consecutive slam appearances in history. Yeah. With 62. And she is uh, somehow having possibly her best career year, playing her best tennis at her big age. Good for her. Who Now, who are the players who have reached one quarterfinal? You said there were seven. Cornet, Tomlanovic, Rybakina, Martic, Badosa, Anisimova, and Garcia. I'm right. particularly happy for Caroline Garcia to be having this result, backing up her title win leading up into Wimbledon. This is somebody for whom so much was expected, and mm-hmm. I personally enjoy watching her game in full flight. There are also five players who are looking to make their first ever slam quarterfinal. Can you guess which five those are? Well, Tan, obviously. Mm-hmm. Bolskova. Correct. Tatiana Maria. Correct. Heather Watson. Correct. And I don't know her first name, Niemeyer. I believe it's Yule. Okay. J-U-L-E. Sure, yeah. She's German? Yes. Yule. Yule. Okay. Maybe she goes by Julia, like Julia Mm -hmm. Gerges. Heather Watson, not only is it an opportunity for her first slam quarterfinal, this is the first week two that she's ever made. Really? First time she's ever been in a slam fourth round. And she may sniff center court on her own merit. I think she actually is scheduled for center court. They put, oh, well, let's not get into the quote-unquote woke scheduling of Saturday. Mm. (laughs) Where Goff and Anisimova were on center and people were very upset that Tsitsipas and Kyrgios weren't. And now it, it sort of started to become clear why they weren't. Because they don't want to platform that kind of Mm -hmm. fuckery. Yeah. But Katie Bolter, poor Katie Bolter, has been on a roll. She's British. She couldn't even sniff court one. And you know at the French, I mean, at the French, you could be ranked 500. And if you're French, they're going to put you on Chatria at some point. We'll come back to Miss Cornet because she made news this week for other reasons as well. Yeah. On the men's side. Wait, we've just, we have to mention... Amanda Anisimova beating Coco Goff today in the third round. This was uh, just a really commanding performance. She picked apart Coco's forehand in the second and third sets, and it didn't feel like the, the result was in question, I think, at some point in the second set. She's reached the fourth round of each major so far this year and has a good chance to go farther. She is one of those players that when they get on a roll... It's really difficult to stop that momentum Mm -hmm. if you're on the other side of the net. A quick word on Paula Badosa. She took out Petra Kvitova today in straight sets. Mm -hmm. On paper, this is a matchup with Petra playing well the last few rounds that you'd have, if you had to put money on it, you'd have picked Petra to win this match. 
Yes. Petra did say after the match that her wrist has been bothering her lately and she's been having some swelling and she's been taking anti-inflammatories. But before the tournament, I did say that Bedoza felt like a very weak number four seed. Mm -hmm. And I'll eat my words because she she has almost held up her end of the bargain. You'll eat your grass. (laughs) Right. She's reached the round of 16, but she will play Simona Halep, who didn't feel like wasting time against Fresh today. And if you look at the remaining women, there are two that jump out as the big, big favorites. You'd have to say the the odds are in favor of a Halep Jabor final. That would be the could be the prime time matchup mm. from these remaining matches. Mm. But if you want to pick from a group of people who have done this before, you know, you would have to go with Ostapenko, who hasn't done this at Wimbledon, but she's won a major. She's made a quarter here, a semifinal here before. We're going to end up with Harmony Tan versus Tatiana Marie. <laughs> For all the glory. (laughs) (laughs) If it's a shock, I would just hope that it's Watson. I'd be okay with Tatiana Maria too. Yeah. She seems lovely. (laughs) (laughs) And shout out to Yelena Ostapenko for being, I think, the only player in here who's going for the triple. She's in the mixed draw. She's in the women's doubles draw. And she's good. She has a legitimate shot at the singles title, and she's still in both doubles draws. She's also somebody who, for all the flack that she's gotten over her career for maybe not living up to her potential after winning the French Open, she's put together quite the consistent stretch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you watch this tournament so far and you thought, well, damn, the women's draw is now a mess, well... So too is the men's. <laughs> Again, the ATP is basically anchored by two goats, and the rest is, it's your guess. Your guess is as good as mine. If you thought that maybe Carlos Alcaraz would struggle on grass and maybe not make it to week two, you were wrong. He had his growing pains in his first couple matches, but he's been smooth sailing since. Well, that's the thing with this kid is that he he did struggle a little bit, but he learns so fast. Like, he learns within matches. Djokovic is still there. Nadal is still there. The draw on the bottom half was kind of blown up by COVID. Yes. Matteo Berrettini, who was one of the favorites for this title, had to withdraw before the tournament with COVID. His opponent, Garin, had an extremely tough first round, but Garin now finds himself in the round of 16 for the second consecutive year. Marin Cilic, who was supposed to be Nadal's round four opponent, he too had to pull out before the tournament after testing positive for COVID. And Roberto Bautista Agut, same thing. Let's just go through the uh, the round of 16 matchups here. Djokovic versus Tim Van Rijthoven, the shocker who won Sertogenbosch at home. And Having his, never won a main draw ATP tour match before is now in the round of 16 at Wimbledon. The winner of that will face the winner of Sinner and Alcaraz. Goffin Tiafo, a rematch from their French Open match, which Goffin won. And then Cam Nori and Tommy Paul. On the bottom half, Christian Garin against Alex Diminar. Brandon Nakashima against Nick Kyrgios. Jason Kubler against Taylor Fritz, and Botik Fantasanschulp against Rafa Nadal. 
so speaking of Nakashima, the Wimbledon week one was not very friendly for our Canadians, right? Nakashima beat Denis Shapovalov in four sets. Bianca lost early. Felix lost in the first round. But the Americans, there are four Americans in the round of 16, which I'm told is the first time this has happened since 1999. Oh, whoop-de-doo. Yeah, and they're Fritz, Paul, Tiafo, and Nakashima. Mm-hmm. And of those, I mean, Fritz is kind of on fire. Like, Fritz is playing some of the best tennis of his career. One of the discourses surrounding this Wimbledon is the fact that players will not be gaining any ranking points from this tournament. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also the fact that so many players are not in the draw. The women's side, I would argue, was affected far greater than the men with respect to that. Yes, a lot of these players who are having their breakout moments won't be able to benefit from getting ranking points, but they're also getting valuable prize money to help them in their careers. And there's also no guarantee that they would have made it this far had the draws been what they would normally be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I wouldn't go as far as some and suggest that there's an asterisk against all of these achievements. I I really don't believe that. Like, these are real. You only play the people who are in front of you. That being said, who knows how the draw would have shaken out if it were complete. Um, I mean, you said the women's was hit harder, but the men's did lose their number one player. Yes. Right? The men's maybe didn't lose true threats to the title. Well, COVID took care of that. Uh, Exactly. With Chilich and Berrettini. But on the women's side, you know, you lost Savalenka, who was a semifinalist last year, who was a, a true threat to win the title. Francis Tiafo has a huge opportunity here to make his first slam semifinal. He's made the quarters at the Australian Open before, and uh, to beat Goffin and then play either Cam Nori or Tommy Paul for a spot in a slam semifinal, I'm sure he'll take that any slam of the year. Yes. The form of the top two seeds, Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, heading into round three, Djokovic looked impregnable. He remained so. Nadal struggled, I would say, in his first two rounds. Getting back on a grass court for the first time in three years. Those first two matches, he took two set-to-love leads and then lost the third set. Today, however, it was boom-boom Nadal. It was was a total step-up in form. You know, if you think about it, he hasn't really played on grass for several years, right? He didn't play last year. 2020 was canceled. 2019 was his last Wimbledon, right? It takes some time. And he said, like, I I need some time to adjust to the surface. And that's what it felt like. With Djokovic, he lost a set to Kwong and then coasted. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything better versus Kokonakis and then Ketsmanovic. Even got a bagel in there. It's common for Djokovic to lose sets on the way to titles. Likely his toughest ask to the final will be the winner of Sinner and Alcaraz if he makes it to the quarterfinals. Nadal, his draw was seen to be extremely difficult. That has imploded. And what that has allowed is for him to play himself into this tournament. If he gets a couple more wins, Taylor Fritz would be a tough out in the quarterfinals. Maybe Nick Kyrgios in the semifinals. But who knows? Diminar, Nakashima. 
But the draw, it lost Chilich, lost Felix, lost, lost Bertini. Bertini in the semis. So, whereas a couple of rounds ago, it looked very difficult to foresee Nadal winning this third leg of the calendar year Grand Slam, you now see a little bit more wiggle room. Right. And it's not, there's not an easy path to the final no. by any means. Like, Taylor Fritz is a big impediment in my view obviously nick kyrgios is feeling himself and his game and it will take someone who can handle that uh emotional uh, warfare that absolute shit show <laughs> yeah yeah but my point is nadal knows what he needs and he knew he needed matches and that he was not worried about the blips in round one and one round two because with more matches come more preparation better feelings on court a higher standard. Mm. This is how he operates at this point in his career. And I think he's where he wants to be. Now, I want to talk about this COVID thing. Because COVID made an announcement at this Wimbledon and said, Hello, I'm still here. And I'm I'm better than ever. Knocked out a few of the, the top guys. Knocked out poor Tammy Korpach. Uh, but Alizé Cornet brought up something very interesting that hasn't really been seized upon and you gotta wonder like if somebody gagged her after she revealed this she said quote at Roland Garros there was an epidemic of COVID-19 and nobody talked about it in the locker room everyone had it and we said nothing (laughs) and she went on as is her want she went on and on and on and then moderated a bit and said yes I think there have been a few cases and it was a tacit agreement between us we're not going to self-test to get in trouble Afterwards, I saw girls wearing masks, maybe because they knew they might have it and didn't want to pass it on. You also have to have a civic spirit. Is that what a civic spirit is? Wow. You know, I don't think I have the energy for a a lecture or to give you guys a haranguing right now. But, like, what the fuck? This was actually very... I mean, I can't say it was surprising, but to see somebody spell it out so plainly is very disturbing. Somebody on Twitter, I don't know if she wants me to share her name, so I won't, called this antisocial behavior. And that's exactly what it is, right? It's behavior that violates the social contract that we have amongst ourselves. I can make decisions for myself as long as they don't harm others. And this is the problem with COVID, right? Like, it's similar to masking on planes. All of a sudden, the airline said, now you can choose and we respect your decision no matter what. But sure. Okay, sure, like that is pure political drivel. Because what does that mean? It's gibberish. You can give me COVID and I have to respect your decision whether or not to wear a mask. I mean, the it's an infectious disease. I felt like we went over this in 2020. I'm not getting it. It's selfish, but it's also childish. It's saying, yeah, um, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get away with it because... Nobody's watching. Yes. And you know, like the shopping... Like if, if mom and dad go out and I drink some of the scotch, but not too much so that they don't notice, then there was no... There's no issue. It's not wrong because I didn't get caught. Exactly. Right? It's extremely juvenile. But it's also like you're endangering people because not everybody uh, is going to handle COVID the same way. It's not just a flu. Again, we've been over this. And I think I've talked about the shopping cart experiment before, right? Mm -hmm. Like the idea that 
if nobody is around, will you return the shopping cart because it's the responsible thing to do? And it's like a test of responsible behavior in a society. And this is like deeply anti-social behavior. This is coming together and saying, we have COVID. I do literally do not care who I infect because I got to get that check. And it's in keeping with everything we know about tennis players. Yeah. Because time and again, we see that they have entire teams of people to do things for them so they don't do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so and why would why would I return the shopping cart when somebody else is there to do it for me? Right. And I honestly, in some ways, appreciate this candor from Alizé because she basically said, we will not do the right thing unless forced, unless mandated. And that's that's very common across the across society, as we've seen. We thought that maybe COVID was going to be an issue at the French Open. Remember the first couple of days? Yeah, yeah. We're like, oh my God, here comes the first super spreader since the Adria tour. <laughs> right, because there's, it didn't no, happen. there's no bubbles now. And we wondered, how is it that tennis hasn't had an event rocked by COVID? How is it that no semifinals, no finals, no back-end of tournaments have been affected by COVID this long into the pandemic. And now we know why. Because officials, tournaments, the tours, slams, they've said, well, we're not doing testing. And you can play and do whatever you want. If there's no test, there's no COVID. Right. That's that's where we are. If you don't test, there's no positive cases. Rafa confirmed in one of his press conferences that this is how it is. And we've seen his already more cautious than most approach the pandemic ramped up at this tournament with him and his team Mm -hmm. in the wake of everything that's happening. I mean, it's just, it's mind blasting, but entirely predictable and unsurprising that this is the state of affairs in tennis. Right. Wimbledon, I, I guess I wasn't paying attention enough, but I was surprised to learn this week that they're not requiring COVID testing at all, and they're operating on an honor system. If players choose to test and test positive, then they can choose whether or not to withdraw. But it's not required. They're encouraged to withdraw. And this is based on UK government protocols at the moment, which doesn't require isolation after a positive test. Like, this is absolutely crazy. And it made me think, actually, of our Ted Tinling episode and the the ban of Russian players. And it feels that the All England Club and the Wimbledon tournament is so deeply tied to the British government and the empire that it Wimbledon officials act like they can't do anything more than the government does, right? This is, they always tell us, this is a private club and the Grand Slams are governed by the ITF. This tournament could always say, well, the UK government's doing one thing, but we're going to be more stringent. And they're not. And with the ban on Russian and Belarusian players, they said, well, this is the UK government directed and we kind of have to do it. And it it just kind of reminded me how deeply intertwined this club is with like the highest reaches of government. It has a royal patronage, you know? It's so different from other Grand Slams in that way. 
before we move on to some et ceteras, I, I think if I recall correctly, I picked Brandon Nakashima to break out this year. Oh, okay. I think I may have. I didn't even get to talk about Djokovic. Well, we're going to... Well, you want to talk about what? The Sangren stuff? <laughs> well, you talked about Rafa being extra cautious and reporters were asking him, you know, are, oh. you, are you being paranoid? Mm-hmm. Ridiculous questioning. He has a pregnant wife. He has always been cautious about COVID. And Alizé Cornet just blew the whistle and said, everybody has COVID. Why wouldn't he be cautious? Now, why would you ask Novak Djokovic about COVID? Can you think of anyone whose opinion you would value less about avoiding COVID? Can you? I mean, it's a it's a rhetorical question. But why do I care what Novak Djokovic thinks about preventing COVID infections? Has he appeared extremely responsible and erudite about this issue before? I have, no, I'll answer no. I have nothing to add on that. <laughs> when he said, I've been texting with Tennis Sangren, I said, you know what? I've heard enough. He's been texting with Tennis Sangren to thank him for sticking up for him and to be like, you know what? He makes a good point. Why is it that Tennis Sangren, who is unvaccinated, can play the U.S. Open, but me, I, Novak Djokovic, cannot? Mm-hmm. As a foreign national. As, as, as a foreign national who organized a super spreader event in his home country, traveled across international borders while positive for COVID, just went to an interview knowing he had COVID, just sparked an international incident flying into the Melbourne airport. Do you think that the United States government would grant an exemption to this person? He's not saying he well, he's <laughs> going to try for an exemption. He's saying that the rule is unjust he's in saying, general. He's saying it's unjust and that and he understands that for non-famous people, there are ways to get around it. You know, this has been going around Twitter saying, oh, you can enter through this border and then drive through these states and arrive here. Mm-hmm. And then he acknowledged, well, you know, it wouldn't really work for me because if I show up in New York... Cats out of the bag. (laughs) He's saying, like, uh, violating U.S. immigration law is a good idea unless you're famous. And I'm not even saying that the the rules are logical or correct. I'm just saying this is a stupid conversation because the U.S. government really doesn't give a shit about the United States Open Tennis Championships. Okay? And the point is, Sangren can do it because he's a U.S. citizen, and those are the rules for U.S. citizens. You are not a U.S. citizen. I mean, would I love to also see Tennis Sangren banned from the U.S. Open? Sure, but we're not there. I mean, just truly mind-melting And again, and stuff. again, why are we listening to Novak Djokovic about COVID policy? Why? We're going to finish with just some messy moments. Messy, messy yes. moments. And of course, they almost always tend to be these hissy-fitting, hormonal, childish man-boys. Yes. Before we got to Saturday afternoon, which was wild, poor Alejandro Davidovich gets a point penalty on match point for ball abuse. And he didn't realize that these are cumulative code violations He had a previous code for an audible obscenity. Down match point, he hit a ball into the stands. Carlos Ramos was the umpire. Remember him? Mm -hmm. He said, he said, this is who I am. 
Oh my I am going to let you know that this is how I officiate. If you thought <laughs> that that was discrimination in 2018, now, <laughs> now you know. He said, this is me. I'm going to enforce the rules. And he said, you know, son, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Poor Alejandro. I mean, he did he did the dirt, right? It was the correct punishment by the letter of the law. But Vesely walked off and Alejandro just sat there for a while and said, I'm telling you, I'm not going. <laughs> and then stuff devolved further. Yes. Rafa and Sonigo were playing on center court while Tsitsipas and Kyrgios were on court one. You're going to have to take the lead on this bit because right. I was at work for these two matches. I guess we'll start with Rafa, whose match was pretty straightforward. He was in command. Sonigo, uh, around 8, 8 o'clock p.m. UK time, he started complaining about the light. And he was like, he wouldn't let it go. He wanted the lights on right away. Now, the lights were not on on court one. And it's actually, that was very early for them to turn on the lights based on previous nights. Martina did mention that it was overcast, but she also said, you know, tennis doesn't have a light monitor. There's no kind of quantitative way to know when to make this decision. Not like cricket. We've got light meters really? up the wazoo. Oh, see, that's so logical. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, it's just, it's arbitrary. One court has lights on, one court doesn't. It gets to five o'clock in the evening, and it's mid-over. There's maybe like <laughs> ten overs left in the day's play, and Mr. Fast Bowler bowls two balls, and then the third one is a bouncer that flies dangerously close to the batsman's head, and the umpires are like, we got a conference mm. mid-over. And then they pull out the light meter, hold it up to the sky, get the reading. And then they either say, no mass. And they go off the field. Or they say, well, you know, this is still fair game. Mm -hmm. So cricket, this mm -hmm. old-timey colonial sport, they got light meters. They've got instant video replay mm -hmm. for the umpires to see. Wow. All things are possible, eh? Anyway, Lorenzo was complaining about the light. I think, you know, there were... Uh, I, I was not entirely on his side through this. He was about to lose. Right? Like, the set was marching on, and it wasn't going to last very much longer. He gets the referee out, and eventually they stop to close the roof. Rafa was pissed off. You could already... He was really annoyed. So he marches off to the bathroom, comes back. Lorenzo is also known for this grunt. It's an extended grunt that lasts after he hits the ball. And there was a particular point where he made all this noise while the point was still going on. Rafa was really, really unhappy. And did something utterly shocking. He went to the net and basically summoned Lorenzo up to the net to give him a little talking to. I'm told it's something that I've that has never been seen before in tennis. <laughs> well, except let it me... happened not more than five short months ago in Australia. Yes, let me dispel that for you. Uh, he did it against Dennis, who I mean, Dennis's infraction was much much worse. He was going on and on, and 
making all these accusations about Carlos Bernardes and just acting terrible. I was shocked, absolutely shocked, that Rafa summoned Lorenzo to the net to give him a little talking to or explain, you know, what Rafa felt he did wrong and shouldn't do again. Lorenzo was clearly shaken by that exchange. And there was like, I think that was in the penultimate game. So it was smooth sailing from there. There was another extended discussion at the net between the two and a lot of gesturing. I mean, we're talking about a Spaniard and an Italian here. There's a lot of gesturing. And, you know, there were pats and everything, but it was, I think it was clear that Lorenzo was not pacified. Like he, he was kind of humiliated by it. And I totally understand that. And I, I don't think it was the right thing to do from Rafa at all. Um, so he was asked... That's why uh, the umpire is there. Yes, exactly. You don't need to be talking he, to the opponent like that. You just don't. No, in a very paternal way. Uh, he was asked obliquely about it on court. And he said, it, the interviewer said, things got a little spicy there. Do you want to talk about it? So he wasn't asked about that incident in particular. And he did say, uh, first of all, he apologized and said he didn't mean to make Lorenzo feel bad. And he expounded further in press and he apologized again and said it wasn't the right thing to do and that he and Lorenzo spoke about it in the locker room. And I agree, it was it was not the right thing to do. But this is how you handle things like a big person. Like an right? adult. If somebody calls you out, and said, I don't like what you did, you apologize. And you acknowledge that person's position. That's exactly what did not happen in the next match. I mean... I'm tired. I'm so tired. Like a two of these people, Nick Kyrgios and Stefanos Tsitsipas, I would like a reprieve... From this narrative... I would like to excuse myself from having to live in this orbit. Nick had just beaten Stefanos uh, a week or so ago. Nick is a better grass court player than Stefanos, period. Um, and he's going into this tournament with all these people saying, oh, he's going to take it. He's going to take it. All these pick me's, right? want to be on the Nick Kyrgios train when inevitably it revs up and he wins the slam. Now I'm on the side that sort of predicts based on past achievements and past behavior. But he's this incredible entity where talent and demons work in opposition to each other that create this combustible live wire, this Indomitable force <laughs> in men's tennis that could save the day. Yes. See, when you're talented and male, lots of things are excused. But you have to win. The thing is, you can't be like this and be a loser. Because tennis will only tolerate it for so long. I like it better when Nick is playing somebody who also doesn't have questionable things going on on court. (laughs) Right. So this match, let's talk about this match for a second. It was very tight. I mean, there was, there was actually some great tennis being played here. Not all the time, but there were some great exchanges. Nick 
we know what he can do, right? Stefanos's backhand is a liability, unfortunately, and it let him down later on in this match. But really, the only thing people were paying attention to was the mental side. Nick, I mean, yammers non-stop. Talks to the crowd. He's talking out loud to himself while his opponent is serving, which to me is very clearly a hindrance and isn't being called. When Stefanos loses the second set, he knocks a ball into the crowd and comes close to hitting somebody. Hits the scoreboard, I think. And Nick goes, I mean, he approaches the chair and said, that's a default. You got to default him. He called for the tournament referee, did not stop. And this just amped up the bad, bad energy surrounding this match. He's he's also acting in tremendously bad faith. Of course. Because this is something he's default. done many, many times before. This is something he did en route to his only Grand Slam win this year in Australia, but he actually hit somebody. So the thing with Nick is that whenever you see him tweet or say something, if I did this, I'd get banned, without fail, it's always something that he has done and not gotten banned, has gotten little or no consequences for. It's always a tell. And I feel like I've seen like a shift in tennis media coverage of Nick, because when he was younger, I often felt this impulse to defend him, right? I felt that tennis was over-policing him before he really did anything. And over the years, his behavior has gotten actually much, much worse. This is bad. Like, this is shit. I mean, there's two things that were at play. One was, we understood that we were talking about not just a tennis player, but a brown tennis player. That race was something that needed to be at least considered. Right, because other people brought it in. Right, right? back then. It had to at least be considered. And there was a certain level of grace or understanding that we wanted to afford him at that time. Not that it was conditional on him maturing, but we also kind of expected that maybe, unrelated to his actual results on court, but maybe with time, he would, quote unquote, grow up a little bit. That has not happened at all. No, the He's things... become a full-grown adult displaying worse and worse childish behavior. And in my view, the way that he's being covered has gone from, like, earlier in his career, he was talked about like a dog, right? And now, when his behavior is actually a lot worse, the official accounts of all these tournaments are hyping him up like they desperately need this guy to sell the sport. A lot of journalists have softened their language and said, oh, no, he's never boring. It's very strange to me. No How, matter what you think about Nick Kyrgios, you've got to love when so-and-so... Like, when, what, but no, why? I don't, why do you I have to love I don't have to love it. <laughs> right? And, and it, I resent being made to feel like I'm some kind of archaic, stodgy reminiscer of the buttoned-up past. Right, right. Somebody who's, like, defending... The, the purity of sport. And tennis, especially, uh-huh. right? Like, this really extremely conservative understanding of tennis and i don't think that is what it is i think like if you've ever been on the receiving end of male rage there's something about nick's behavior that is really really off-putting to me 
triggering. Yeah. It so to me, like as his career has progressed, and recently I feel like the the fan discourse around it has gotten a lot uglier. Because I th- I think in the earlier part of his career, and even recently, among his fans there was a lot of like justification about well, like this is why he acts like this. And I think it's moved to no longer feeling the need to justify his behavior and just kind of reveling in it getting worse and worse and worse because he kind of whips up this mob right in matches and on Twitter and everything. And I don't feel there's like a limit. I think they would celebrate anything. But we have. And so in that way, it we feels... have historical evidence of how <laughs> men who behave badly in all facets of life, in all industries, have defenders. It'll always happen. Right. But here it, it feels like, you know, the the cruelty is fun. Anything he does is good for tennis because people are paying attention. And the meaner and nastier he gets, the better it is because I'm having fun. And it, in that way, it feels very Trumpian to me, this whole thing. Because, especially in this day and age, as men's behavior get policed more and more... <laughs> When it's no longer socially acceptable to do whatever you want without consequence. This is kind of a reminiscing for the days of the past. Yes. Right? It's a, I understand it to be a celebration, a wistful celebration of what folks wish they could get away with in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, it reminds me of something he said in his press conference because this was like a, a masterclass in don't believe the evidence of your eyes and ears, right? Stephanos called him a bully. And Stephanos is by no means innocent here. He didn't behave that well during the match. He said he likes to bully his opponents. And he was probably a bully in school too. <laughs> right. And I probably believe that. Right. Uh, getting back to Nick for a second. He said, like, Stephanos is soft. Right? And... Mm. Over this is 2022. When you're a man, you call another man soft. It's because you're no longer allowed to call him a pansy mm-hmm. or worse. Right? But you don't mean this it that is, way. You don't mean it that yeah, way. Yeah, like let's be honest here. This is a budding homophobia. Mm-hmm. It may not be homophobia because, like, Stephanos is not an out gay person, but it is trying to attack the essence of his masculinity. Right, saying he's soft, he's not a real man, he can't fight. And there's always like this sort of edge of the threat of violence. And you don't get to just be like, well, I support gays in sport. I support gay people when your actions and your words say otherwise. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not mathing. And this is not to say that Nick Harris is homophobic, that he hates gay people. No, it's just, it's a gross use of language. Yeah, because... If you are an ally, then act like one, period. You cannot be an ally and get credit for it and say things like this. Right, but honestly, this isn't really even what it's about. It's like he was asked about the bully comments, said, what are you talking about? He bullied me. And it's asking you to forget everything that you saw in the previous few hours, all of this wild behavior on court. And tell yourself that, no, I didn't see that. It didn't really happen. I don't, like, I don't have the energy. Like, what journalist is going to sit there and list 
well, here's everything you did. Like, why are you lying? And it's just, it doesn't happen. And then you become the brunt of the joke. Then you become the target. Right, right. There's always a target. So in this in this match, Stefanos wasn't actually the target for most of it. It was the officials. Lines person, umpire, tournament referee. There's always some some people in the crowd that are the targets. But Stefanos did not. He just didn't handle it well at all. He said in press that when he shot that ball into the crowd, he was aiming for Nick. He went at him a few times at the net on purpose. Like, this was very obvious. I, I mean, if you're at net, I have no problem with sure, but it was them going after him. repeated over and over. Did he repeatedly come to net? No. It, no Stephanos I, I, was clearly trying to hit him because he was pissed off. Okay, I understand that. I'm just saying there are... When it's tactically the right move... There are ways I've, to be smart about it. Right. But he wasn't. And what, what this demonstrated was that Stephanos, once again, allowed himself to be rattled. And, I mean, I don't blame someone for being rattled in this situation. Because even if you're not the target, to shut all this stuff out is very difficult. But he didn't, he didn't act in a way where he could leave the match... With plausible Being deniability. Being the innocent party. Yeah. Right? Plausible because... <laughs> deniability. <laughs> yes. But, but what I'm getting at here is, and Rene Denfeld tweeted this, and he's absolutely right. Stefano Tsitsipas has been unable to give a good account of himself in these grudge matches. Mm-hmm. He repeatedly allows himself to be rattled. Because at this point, you're a grown-ass man now too. You know what's coming. This is this is not unforeseen stuff. Mm-hmm. So you have this history with Daniel Medvedev. You continue to allow yourself to be rattled. You continue to have a losing head-to-head. The same goes with Kyrgios. This was a match that he didn't have to lose. Right. This you was know, a you, you very, say that Kyrgios is match. a much better grass court player, but we're talking about a fourth set tiebreak. No, they could have. There were a lot of chances in the fourth set. There were. Steph could have won this match. Yes, so that's my point. At a certain point, you have to remove yourself from the narrative. <laughs> right, right. You have to rise above it. If if you claim to be positioning yourself as the light to his darkness. Right, the aggrieved party. The good to his evil. <laughs> then walk that walk too. <laughs> you know, the, I, yeah. I just don't understand. The, the whole thing is just a complete... And utter mess all around. Mm-hmm. And you've got a lot of people who will leave this match. A lot of powerful people in tennis who will say, wow, this was a huge success. Because a lot of people were talking about tennis. Okay. And I, I honestly, I don't even know what the argument against that is. Because objectively, yet, I'm sure it's probably true. a lot of people were watching. A lot of people were talking about it. I was more invested this afternoon than I have been most of the tournament. Like, those things are true. But is this the tennis that you want? Uh, And I've said this before. Like, you're bringing non-tennis fans into tennis with this circus. But they're not going to stay. They don't stay for the rest of it. They're just here for the drama. One of the bottom line takeaways for me with this whole situation is that Nick Kyrgios is a serial gaslighter. He never takes responsibility for his own actions. And for me, 
one of the, the cleanest, easiest, most reliable tells on somebody's character. And you can use this almost universally in your life. Is when somebody can take accountability for their actions. When, even if they feel like they haven't done you wrong, when you tell them that your actions affected me in this way, and this is how I felt, how a person responds to that says everything. And you spoke to this idea of Nick existing in this Trumpian way. And this is where it's a no-fly zone for me with him. Mm -hmm. Because he never apologizes. He never sees the wrong in his actions. He always points the finger at somebody else haphazardly, wherever something may land. Distract, distract. Look over there! (laughs) And it's never inward. There is no weakness. There is no softness in pointing that finger inward. That is a sign of growth, of maturity, of being a good person to be able to take responsibility for how you move around in this world and how that may have had a negative effect on somebody else. And that's where I am with Nick Curious. Like, miss me with all of it. Mm-hmm. Because until a man of his big age is able to take accountability for how he moves through this world, then I want none of it. All right, party. Was that, <laughs> was I moralizing too much? No, I mean. I'm probably going to get a review about that. Oh, that yeah, definitely. These, and, these woke, oh these woke queens. And we talked about COVID again. That one person is going to be so mad. I didn't even mention the word vaccine. I mean, that's <laughs> the thing that got us the really bad reviews was the vaccine oh stuff. God. I didn't even say the word. I just said a very true fact that Novak Djokovic is not not the authority here. So you're you're going back to this again? I am because I feel it needs to be said. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> I understand the need to ask the question mm. as a reporter, but why? This is the end of this episode. <laughs> this is the end. Uh, Middle Sunday is coming up. Did you know that they play on Middle Sunday now? I did know. I had to ask you this. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, a, another rhetorical question. This was right after you asked me which Pliskova is left or right. Shut again. up. <laughs> I haven't messed that up in many years. I don't even know if the other Pliskova is still playing. I haven't seen her in a long time. What's her name? Christina. Oh, wow. And she's a lefty. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. See, I know things. Um, Look out for that woke scheduling in week two. <laughs> Look out for it. <laughs> The All England Club, I mean, they are they are truly leading the pack in social consciousness, as always. Mm. What a mo- They are the moment. <laughs> we'll be back for our Wimbledon recap in a little bit. Hopefully not too long after the tournament has ended. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Everything BodyServe related is at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.